0: Um, y'all, we're in Jonah 3, and uh, real quick recap, we're just going to jump right into this pretty quickly, because there's a, it's a short chapter, um, and we can, we can blast through it pretty quickly, but there's a good aspect, a good component of our faith we really want to pause and look at, and so with that, it, it's still a few verses, much to say. We're going to jump right into a quick recap, in Jonah 1. If you remember, God commissions Jonah to go to the Ninevites, and Jonah disobeys. Um, and we begin to see pretty clearly at that point that this is not a prophet that we're used to. We're used to God sending His prophets, and then they go um, declare destruction and, and repentance, and then people respond. Whenever God says to Jonah that he needs to go, Jonah goes, Nah, no, I'm not going 250 miles over there. I'm going to go 2,500 miles this way. So he tries to flee. That's Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter two is what we talked about last week, and It was basically God disciplines Jonah, Jonah repents, and then God delivers Jonah. And that gets us to to Jonah 3. And here's what we have in Jonah 3 God has provided us the opportunity to look at the fruit of repentance. I know that sounds really exciting, you know, but the fruit of repentance is what we're going to see actually play out in Jonah chapter 3. And so we're going to talk about repentance. How do we see that in Jonah? What do we see with the Ninevites? And then hopefully bring it all back home. Not to praise the Lord for Jonah, praise the Lord for the Ninevites, but really praise the Lord for his gracious mercy towards all people. That's the heart of this. So, Jonah 3, 1-10 through 10 says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Lord God, um, with your word open before us, Lord, may we see you in your goodness, and your desire to, to move your gospel to the nations, but also to hold accountability to your justice. Because you are holy, and you are righteous, and you are mighty. And any sin before you is unacceptable and egregious. And yet you use a prophet who disobeyed to take your glorious gospel to a nation who from its very foundation is evil and wicked and set against you. And you would redeem them unto yourself as well. Lord, help us to see you working through this text, and may we leave here humbled and glorifying you. Lord, I do not pray for eloquent speech, but Lord, just to clearly communicate the truths that you give us in your work that you have sustained through the ages for all of your people in all nations. Lord, be with us now. Amen. Okay, so of course, Baptist sermon, three points, right? So here are your three points. We're going to look, number one, at, at the title, because I titled this one, Where There Is Repentance. Where There Is Repentance. I want to talk about why that title. And then we're going to look at Jonah and repentance, and then the Ninevites and Nineveh and repentance. So that's kind of our paradigm that we're walking through. And it's it's simply this. Why did I title it Where There Is Repentance? And it's because of this. Because repentance is key. That's it. Repentance is key. Remember that repentance is that complete 180 that if we are walking along our hellbound path in this way, that all of men and women are. We're going this way. Uh, repentance is to do the 180 and turn from the sinful pursuit right here and to turn back to Christ and begin walking in this way. And that's what we saw in Jonah last week. And now we're going to see the, the fruit of that repentance. But with that in mind, I have to share one of my favorite poems. And you're not going to be moved by this. You're not going to think that's now my favorite poem. But I have to share this, this poem with you. It's by William Carlos Williams. Very short poem. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. That's it. That's it. That's the poem. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And so as I read Jonah 3, and I title it Where There's Repentance and I'm gonna talk about why that line comes up so much depends upon it right so much depends upon that red wheelbarrow don't worry I'm gonna explain it to you briefly okay but so much depends upon repentance and so as I'm as I'm preparing for this and and God's using uh, my experiences and and my own quirkiness with his word and and how we bring this together to communicate to people William Carlos Williams brief little odd poem comes up so much depends upon that red wheelbarrow now side note in case you ever have to talk about this poem what depends upon the red wheelbarrow we don't know how much rainwater we don't know how many chickens were there we don't know we know they were white we know the red wheelbarrow is glazed with rainwater and we know that so much depends upon it but we don't even know what depends upon that red wheelbarrow and yet this is going to be one of the most famous poems by William Carlos Williams You pick up a a textbook or a literary book that you're gonna need for college and you're gonna go into uh, comp one, it might be in your comp one book. You're gonna study American literature, it's gonna be there. You're gonna study world literature, it may be there as well. I've taught this from seventh grade through college courses, this one poem. And the response is always, where's the rest, right? Because it doesn't feel like a deep poem. And in many ways it's not. In fact, where this poem gets its strength is that as you say it over and over, so much depends upon the red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. You see that red wheelbarrow over and over and over. And you can picture it. You can actually picture the red wheelbarrow. And you can picture what that red wheelbarrow looks like glazed with rainwater. And you can picture the white chickens beside it in a time when poetry had become so abstract that it was hard for people to like visualize what was going on in the poem and understand it. William Carlos Williams writes this poem, So Much Depends. And people could see it so clearly that it immediately became popular and it became uh, part of the imagistic movement, because you can see that image. and that's how repentance is. right? We don't know, just for the record again, we don't know what depended upon that red wheelbarrow. And I've read, the, I've read essays from students who are like, "Well well, this is a farm, obviously, and, uh, and they need that wheelbarrow for, for work, and, and they've got all, and they're going to pull it down. They're really going to talk about it. And the truth is, we don't know. But I'm telling you, we do know about repentance. My hope today is that, like that red wheelbarrow, that we can clearly see and we understand that so much depends upon it, is that that's what we can do in Jonah chapter 3 as well. Because Jonah chapter 3 shows us the fruit of repentance. It is the one thing that we can clearly see. And so there you go. That's your, that's your real quick blast through um, real quick American literature um, world literature. William Carlos Williams. He also has a great poem about plums um, in the refrigerator. I won't read it now, but it's a perfect poem, very clear. But y'all, so much depends upon our repentance, in two ways: for our salvation, which we tend to think of, but also for our sanctification. Right? And those are two big S words that that the church really needs to to make sure that we understand. Our salvation, we we probably understand. We have been saved from hell. The wrath of God has been poured on Jesus Christ. He has secured us for all of eternity by his blood that he he spent and he purchased us. He ransomed us. So we understand the salvation aspect probably. Probably not deep enough, but we understand it. But sanctification is that process by which we grow to be more like Christ. So as you wake up today and you're like, you know what? I'm going to put this sin aside and I'm going to pursue him in this way. That's your sanctification. When your kid is just screaming at you and pushing you to the edge of your temperament and you realize that there is a, there's the a way you want to respond and then there's also the Christ-honoring way and we don't always choose the Christ-honoring way because we're real parents in real time with real kids dealing with real situations and we respond in this way and then there's that conviction. We're like, oh, I can't do it that way anymore. i got to do it this way. That's sanctification. Like all of our life, all the pattern of our lives, The spouses we marry, the kids we have, the jobs we go to, the crises that come into our life, the joys that come into our life. Whenever you wake up and you wake up to a new day and you're like, this is a beautiful day, and your heart is automatically oriented more towards God in a way it hasn't, and you have that, that's also your sanctification. It's the process by which we become more and more like Christ. And to become more and more like Christ, repentance is at the core. And to be saved from hell to life depends on on repentance. So I want to look at this real quick. I want to talk about repentance at the core of our, of our salvation. Okay, and this is going to be upended because if we look at Jonah, right? so we're not to the textual breakdown, we're to the topic of repentance right now. If we read Jonah 3, 1 through 10, we actually can see the fruit of Jonah's repentance, so that's his sanctification, and we see what God does through that. Then we get to salvation. We're going to talk about salvation first. Now, If you're sitting here and you're like, Ricky, why do we need to preach repentance if we are a gathering of believers? Because we need to know what we know so that we can tell others. We were never meant to come here and be a holy huddle. We were meant to come here, be equipped, and go. And so we want to make sure we understand what repentance is in its fullness. So here we go. Repentance is at the core of our salvation. That means everything we do in our salvation we, we might talk about the cross, but the cross is only reached through repentance. So the cross is the crux of it. Right? That's what holds us. But repentance was the pathway that got us there. That we, going along our way like this, God quickened our hearts, and we saw the cross, but we had to repent. That was the action that was upon us. But at the same time, repentance is a gift from a gracious God that would even give us a desire to turn from that which was distasteful to him and turn to him who is worthy of all glory and praise. Like, we can't sit there in and of ourselves, or we didn't sit there in and of ourselves, and just one day watch TV and go, he's holy, he's glorious. Why not? Let's give this a shot. We never became wise enough in and of ourselves. In our pride, we like to think we did. In our pride, we like to believe that we came to this knowledge in and of ourselves. Like, we lived a life in this way. Maybe it was so bad that we knew that there had to be something good, or maybe it was so good that we knew there had to be something greater. But we didn't reach that in and of ourselves. Scripture is so clear that the the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Scripture is so clear that he works the soil of our hearts so that we can receive his message. It's so clear that he gives us the heart that wants to repent. And what we do with that is we are responsible for how we respond. But he gives us a heart that's tender enough to turn back to him. A heart that's been shaped by the callousness of the world, by the evil that's in us from the time that we grow up. I have three kids. We did not have to teach them what sin was. They just simply committed it, even in their crib, crying selfishly for what they wanted, throwing a fit when they didn't get it. It manifests itself differently Because as we mature and we grow up, we also become wiser in how we can commit those deeds. But at the base level, we know that sin is there from birth. Praise God that he gave us a heart that would repent. But I'm telling you that the people that we interact with and, and who we were, we cannot treasure the Son of God unless we turn away from the sins that we once held to. In Ephesians 2, 1, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. When you get bored with worship, when you get bored with prayer, when you get bored with church, remember this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There was one destination for you and for me, believers, and that destination was hell. The wrath of God was ready to be poured out on us. We were Dead. And we loved it. We didn't know there was anything else. But God, right? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us would give us a heart that could repent, that would desire to repent. And then when we do repent, he receives us home. So we need repentance. It is the core of our salvation. So the cross at the crux But repentance at the core, if we had not repented, we would not reach the cross. So all I'm trying to clarify for what we already know is simply this, that repentance is our response to the salvation that God offers. And that part is on us. We cannot say, God, I want you, but I'm not turning away from this. Do you know how core this is to me, God? Do you know who I am? You made me like this, right? Oh, no, but he is holy. And so we cannot cling to the world and hope to turn to God. R.C. Sproul aptly stated that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's ingrained in who we are. What I'm afraid of is that as we grow older as Christians, as we mature as Christians, we we forget how much work he's actually done on our behalf. We get so used to hearing about the cross that we forget the blood that was spent. We hear about the passion of Christ and we forget that that passion included him being whipped, and his flesh torn, his blood plucked, the thorns slammed on his head, the mockery, they would rip his clothes from his body. We forget that because we get so caught up in life and the things that that brought us to him to see that his wrath was poured out on Jesus and, and Jesus became sin in this way and gave himself for us, we become so used to that that it no longer moves us. And our only proper response is to repent. Lord, I'm sorry that I forget all that you gave so I could be yours. So R.C. Sproul told us, he says, we're not sinners because we sin. We're not saying you're a sinner, but because you, you sinned yesterday You sinned because you are a sinner. It's still in us. The old man is not gone. He's been defeated. He's been given a death blow. There's a new man within us, but the new man and the old man are at war, and sometimes the old man creeps up within us, and he says, oh, yes, but what if? We haven't done this in a while. Just what if? And that sin clings so closely to us. But praise God that the sinless son of man and God, he bore the wrath reserved for you and me so that all we know is grace. And the the problem with grace is that grace is so free and liberating that we often forget the grace. That's why you need to constantly be reminded of the gospel, not just for salvation, but to secure us, to keep bringing us back. There was a great exchange of righteousness for unrighteousness in Christ on the cross. And I, I I know you know this but you know why we repeat it? Because it's so important. If we leave this place and we're like, you know what, I want to be like Jonah. I want to be like the Ninevites. Just, spoiler alert, neither one do you want to be like, okay? We're the most like Jonah, we would think, but you know what? We were the Ninevites. We were the wicked, the brutal, the ruthless, pagan, Gentile nation that God sent his messenger to so that his gospel could reach us. So of the two, Jonah and Ninevites, if you leave here and you're like, oh, that one's more heroic, I'm going to go with this one. I'm saying you don't have a good choice between the two. What you do have is the hero of Jonah's narrative, which is Christ on the cross. That God in his grace would look over the sins throughout the Old Testament and pour them out on Christ. He was patient. Okay, so so repentance... We have to repent. It's our response to the message of salvation that God has given us. I want you to look at a couple of verses real quick. And as you're, so turn to 1 Samuel. And that one's going to take you a while to find. Okay, so turn to 1 Samuel. And as you're getting there, I want to I just hold this up really quick. That all of the benefits of the cross, all the benefits of Christ and, crossing, and, and the cross and God have their access through the repentant heart. So Forget forget T-shirts, forget coffee mugs, forget Sunday school attendance, which we don't have, by the way, so that's good because then that would work against us. Forget every aspect that we would say to an outward world, hey, here's how you know I'm a Christian. I go to this church over here. I attend this Bible study. I've read these books. Look at my bookshelf. Forget all that. The heart is what matters. So my question for you is, and for the lost is, where does the heart gaze? Right? And that moves it beyond you and me. It says in, in Scripture that we no longer consider one another as man considers based on outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And so here's just a couple of verses for us. First Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. And I, I, I am like, you can go back and you can read the context of these, but But the truth of these stands right here. For the lost that we're going to reach, and and, and how God reached us as a lost, he wasn't going after our outward affections. He was going after the heart. And so you and I need to remember what 1 Samuel 6-7 says. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. This is whenever he's in pursuit. He's going to find ultimately David, David the king. But... But David had a lot much, uh, much stronger, more handsome brothers. Um, and they looked like they should be the king. So don't look on his appearance on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord y'all, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the repentant heart looks upon him. And the wayward heart looks away from him. Look at Joel 2.13. That's not the verse. Okay, I don't, maybe it's Second Samuel. Um, it's somewhere in the Bible, I don't know where now, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. Where is it now? That's going to drive me crazy. We're going to find that. Tell you what, I'll text it to you. 16.7. I missed the one. This is why I did not teach math, by the way. 1 Samuel 16, 7, I'm so sorry. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. All right, so God is, God is after the heart. And, uh, and then now you can turn to Joel. You're going to go to your right. I want to just have like a real quick, you know, obscure books of the Bible that we never visit. Um, go to Joel 2.13. So it's going to be to your right, minor prophet. And I'm pretty sure I have this address right, Joel 2.13. says, So rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion, and he relents from sending disaster. So the repentant heart, we see that that's what God sees. And he is gracious when he sees it. He's compassionate. Believers, he is slow to anger. And he will relent from sinning disaster. He meant that towards the Old Testament, and it was a judgment. But you realize that we were recipients of disaster and wrath. His salvation was to rescue us from that. But I'm going to clarify to you, where there is no repentance, there is no salvation. That's what it simply comes down to. If there's no repentance, as we are um, proclaiming to others, as we go on mission, as we go wherever it is we go, if we're talking to them and they aren't repenting, then there is no salvation. It's absolutely impossible. All right, so point number two, repentance is at the core. This is what you and I also need right now. Repentance is at the core of our sanctification You and I cannot grow in our holiness and faith without repentance. It is at the core of the daily pursuit of Christ. Repentance is a good thing. But what we tend to do in our circles uh, of, of Christians is we talk about repentance. I repented of my sins and I gave my life to Christ. And then we never talk about repentance anymore. And some of you are like, well, not in my circles. Well, you're in a good circle, right? But I'm talking about regular American Christianity. We need to be reminded over and over again that repentance is a good thing. It's a grace from God, and it's something that we need on a daily basis. You know, it's such a fundamental teaching that we've, we've missed it, and we personally witnessed this. And I'm going to use some examples that I've heard, and, and you may have heard them before. We may even be guilty of thinking the same things, but... But it sounds something like this. Well, I'm human, so I'll sin. Like we just begin to, we don't talk about repentance. Instead, we just kind of make ourselves comfortable with the sin that's within us. Because we still sin, right? But we we tend to say something like, well, I'm human, so of course I'm going to sin. And when we say it, we're basically saying that sin is not that important. Whenever scripture says your sin separates me, my, my sin separates me from God. We'll say something like, well, everyone sins, and we kind of say it flippantly. Well, they sin, so what's the big deal? I'm better than Marissa right now, at least, right? And so we make it kind of a comparative thing. Probably not, but you're right there, Or we'll say, well, this is just a part of who I am. I've heard that one a lot. This sin, this action, it's just kind of a part of who I am, right? We hear that a lot, but we also hear that, that work its way um, through, through different genders as well. What's well, just natural, that men would gravitate towards that. That's just kind of part of who we are. No, it's not. Well, we're just, we're women. We just kind of gravitate towards the sin. It's just kind of part of who we are. No, it's not. It's only a part of us because we want it to be a part of us. But we've become so casual with our sin that we no longer repent of it. And if you and I would grow in Christ, If we would become holier and grow in our faith, then we have to see the sin for what it is, and we have to repent of it. But I can tell you that whenever we shrug away our sin, we show the shallowness of our faith. If we're just like, that's just sin, then we're showing how shallow we truly are in our walk with Christ. If we're willing to just kind of um, make sin casual to us, then we're going to have a casual or non-existent pursuit of Christ. Like, if we're just like, well, that's a sin, it's a part of who I am, and we just embrace it and we're going to cling to it and it's just okay with us, then how in the world can we go to a holy God with that? To a holy God who said, I have given my one and only Son, that if you believe in me, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. And we're like, oh, praise the Lord, thank you for saving me. And then we go over here and we dabble in sin. And then we want to bring... That to him, of course we don't. We know we can't bring our sin to him, so what we allow to happen when we refuse to repent is we invite the distance that we have with God. But if we want to hold on to this sin and we want to cling to it, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying sin flippantly. I'm saying that whenever sin comes in, it's going to root itself into you and it's going to cling to you and it will fill like a part of you because it's so deep-rooted in who you are. It begins to, we, it lies to us and says, I am part of your identity. There's no way you can do without me. Sin works itself into ourself in that way. Whenever God has said so simply, I forgive you and it's not who you are, and I will remember that sin no more, and I will cast as far as the east is to the west. I want you all to remember church, brothers and sisters in christ those who believe in jesus those who are going to heaven like I'm, I'm making sure i cover all of this hebrews twelve fourteen says this pursue holiness without which no one will see god that is sobering and that is scary pursue holiness he's writing to believers he's writing to those who are gathering to listen to this letter to the hebrews and in it, it says, moved by God's spirit, whoever penned Hebrews wrote from God to us, to his holy people, pursue holiness, without which, without that holiness, no one will see God. But I made a profession of faith. I was baptized whenever I was in seventh grade. I'm trying to live a good life. right? But remember, God looks at the heart. And, and that might be what you're saying right now is, you know, Ricky, you can't see my heart. You don't know the turmoil that this really puts me in, or you don't know how flippant I am about it. Like Ricky, you don't know, and you're absolutely right. Praise the Lord! I don't know your heart. The wickedness of my heart's enough. Right? The wickedness of my heart is enough of a battle for me. I don't need the wickedness of your heart, but the Lord knows. He knows what the, your true bent towards sin is, or is not. It may be a stronghold, but it doesn't mean it's what you treasure. Right? Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed, Lord, take this away from me. And God says, nope, instead my grace is sufficient for you. You get to keep the thorn. There may be a lifelong struggle in, in health or psyche or emotion. There's gonna, there may be a thorn that you can't completely unroot, but God looks at the heart. And so all I'm trying to say to you, those of you who've been saved, is that daily repentance for your sanctification is a heart matter. That God looks at the heart, and a heart that does not repent daily, that does not pause to see the sin that separates us from Christ, the heart that does not repent is a heart that is not daily turning back to God. That's what we need. And I'm saying daily, and some of you are like, okay, daily, Ricky, about like half day, like Absolutely. Rick, has it ever been so bad that you feel like you're repenting like every few minutes at your house, you know, because your kids are driving you crazy? I'm like, absolutely, right? But repentance is what we need. It's at the core of our salvation that brought us to Christ, and it's at the core of our sanctification. As we grow to be more like Christ, you and I will find conviction, and as we are convicted, that's not a bad thing. It's the opportunity to repent. Our conviction is a loving Nudge from our God, and sometimes it's not a nudge, sometimes it's a lasso around your neck and he's yanking you back around. But conviction is what God puts within us so that we will repent to be more like him. Like constant reorienting. I want us to have a heart at cross life that's like Psalm 51, 3-4. The psalmist says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's the heart. Of a repentant Christian who wants to pursue holiness, we see it. We don't just have worldly sorrow, but we desire him against him. We sent. Can I want to? I want to send you the Old Testament a couple more times, and we're, then we'll um, we'll get straight into Jonah. Isaiah fifty-seven. Please go to Isaiah fifty-seven. Because here's the heart of here. Not here's the heart. Here's the avenue to repentance. Right? The avenue to repentance. So our way to the cross is, is through repentance. The way we reach repentance is through this, humility. We have to be willing to be humble enough to understand that God is who he is and we are unfortunately who we are. And we need repentance. But humility is a foreign concept in our American society. It's so, in fact, natural to me to not be humble that thankfully the Lord has given me a loving spouse who sometimes graciously but more typically bluntly just says, you know that that's your pride speaking. It's just part of who we are, right? It's why we're offended when we get cut off in traffic. It's why we're offended when somebody responds the way that we didn't think they should. It's our pride in us. Whenever we tell our kids to do this and then they don't do it, there's an aspect of their disobedience, but there's also pride in us of we deserve better, that they should listen to us. Like Pride is just so naturally ingrained in all that we are. Right? It's one of those that clings and it roots itself so deeply into us. And I would say that pride is at the root of every sin that we commit. I believe John Piper says no, unbelief is. Well, I'm not going to argue with John Piper, but, but I think that pride and unbelief, that, those two kind of go hand in hand. Isaiah 57, 15 says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. Y'all hear this. He says, I dwell in a high and holy place. And we're probably going, amen, that's heaven. Keep going. And with the oppressed and humble in spirit, to restore the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. You know where God dwells, according to Isaiah 57, in the high and holy heavens and in the humble heart. He has two places that he will dwell. High and holy heavens and the humble heart. The humble heart should be the heart of the Christian. And then Psalm fifty-one seventeen says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Because a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. We don't need stronger, really just powerful Christians. We need those who are humble and who will walk in holiness before the Lord. So there's a, a passage that I referred to in Luke 15 last week, the prodigal son. The son who, who is a son of, of the father, a legitimate son of the father, just as we are sons of our heavenly father. The son wakes up after squandering everything. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What if we made that our prayer? Like, forget all other words, but we just go to God in prayer and we say, after our sin or after or whatever he's convicted you with, and you say, I, I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. No more defenses, no more rationalizations, no more words needed before holy God. I'm just not worthy. And in that humility, God do, and, and we know. From Luke 15, we know what the father did whenever his son repented. He ran to him, he embraced him, he clothed him, he called up for a whole family celebration. They killed the fatted calf. Y'all, you know, whenever we repent, we are not repenting to an angry God. We are repenting to a loving God who says, You've sinned, but I've covered it. I've covered everything. Come. But I think what happens is we believe the delusion of our sin over here. Well, there's no way I could go back to God. There's no way he would want me after I've done this. He's already been so good to me. He, there's no way he would want me in his presence. And apart from Christ, probably Right. Because apart from Christ, there's no righteousness in us. But do not forget, Christians, that the Son who died on the cross who saved you is the one who's sanctifying you, and he's the one who's interceding for you on the throne. He is the great high priest who knows what you and I have walked through, and he is with us the entire way. The shepherd never leaves his sheep. So, repentance, so much depends upon it. And now we're in, we're in Jonah 3. I know, it was a long introduction, right? Don't worry, it was part of the body, quote-unquote body, of the sermon. So we've already done the introduction. We've done the biggest part of the body of the sermon. But I'll also three hours in this recording. Okay, so, Jonah chapter 3. How does all that tie together? You know, why call it where there is repentance? And why spend so much time? Because, y'all, we're about to see the fruit of repentance. So, repentance for Jonah in chapter 3. Repentance for Jonah, that, and that occurred in, in actually Jonah 2. He's in the, the belly of the great fish. That's part of his sanctification. His repentance was for his sanctification. And it's going to bring about a recommissioning for Jonah. Right. So God is going to look at his repentant heart and he's going to say, good, now go now. Like he actually graciously gets a second chance to honor the Lord. He was not utterly cast away because of his disobedience, but, but he, he repented and he was reassigned to this task. That's what we see here. And then for the Ninevites, repentance for the Ninevites, these, these are Gentiles, they are evil. I mean, history books write about the Ninevites. They, they would be the Assyrians that we know. I mean, these are wicked, bloody, ruthless people. They did not know God, they didn't love God, they didn't want God, but they hear this message and repentance for them is their salvation. So everything we just talked about, repentance is at the core of salvation, repentance is at the core of sanctification. We see that played out here. When they repent, God will, quote, relent of visiting his wrath on them. So Jonah 3, we're going to see this play out. Jonah 3, 1 through 5, repentance in Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. So, you see the fruit of his repentance. He disobeys. He gets swallowed by, we're just going to say, well, even though it's a great fish, we don't quite know what it is. And we saw his prayer in Jonah chapter 2, that because he disobeyed, God would discipline him. And then as a result of God's discipline, Jonah repents. And so, here's what God does. God continues to use him for his work. You know, one of the chief evidences that you and I have peace with God is that he would use us for his work. I've told Jared that if he wants our friendship to stay intact that he and I don't need to work together painting I'm a horrible painter I will mess it up maybe intentionally I hate to paint but also whenever I try my hardest I am NOT a good painter if we work together there would be no peace and in honor of that Jared has never asked me to help him paint anything because there's not that peace there to employ me for his work right One of the chief evidences that there is peace by the blood of the cross is that God would choose to use people like you and me that he would have such peace with us that he would send us to go do his work. And that's what I think we see with Jonah. His repentance in the belly of the fish was genuine enough and God could see his heart that there's peace enough that God sends him on the mission field again. He says, go and do this. But that God would choose to use Jonah despite his previous disobedience is just further evidence that God is gracious and merciful. I mean, if I were Jonah, I'm not going to lie, wouldn't it be kind of good to go preach some of the message? That, I mean, there's I'm not going to lie, there's a certain darkness and wickedness in me maybe, but I'm like, why would you not want to go preach that God is going to utterly destroy your pagan unholy nation? I mean... It just seems like something that we'd want to do. And oh, Ricky, we would never do that. We're here on a Sunday morning. We love Jesus. Absolutely. We love revenge. And this is a message of vengeance. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. If you want to, I'm not going to go there, but if you want to look at like Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 to see what this might look like, one of these messages, then, then you can get an idea of what he might have been preaching. He also might have simply preached. You got 40 days, and God's going to destroy you, because that's all Scripture says. And thinking that Jonah didn't really want to preach to him anyway, part of me believes that that might be all Jonah said, over and over and over again. Simple message. But Micah does show us what, and so does Isaiah, so do the other prophets. They show us what some of these, these messages of destruction look like. Like God's going to come down from His holy throne. He's going to melt your mountains like wax. He's going to destroy your cities. Stones will just be kind of thrown in a heap. He's going to absolutely destroy you. No one will be living it. Like these are the messages. And Jonah doesn't want to. You got to see this. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Why would he not want to preach repentance to them? He received it. Why would he not? Because of Jonah 4 2. And he prayed. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said? When I was yet in my country, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Did you catch that? You know why Jonah did not want to go preach to them? Because he knew that they would repent and that God would forgive them. Now, Jonah's, Jonah's a different kind of prophet for you and me, Right? I mean, I would think that whenever a whole nation turns to God, I would hope that my heart would say, praise the Lord, he is mighty to save. And we're going to sing all these songs. And Jonah's like, that's why I don't want to go tell him, because you're going to save them." Like, there's that deep-seatedness in him. So Jonah's mindset was basically this. I have received all of your goodness and mercy. Thank you so much. But it's not for them. It can't be for them. Y'all, his his heart had been, let them be judged and let them suffer. It's what they deserve. And I'm afraid if I'm not careful left to my own own desires in my heart, the the spirit of Jonah, that heart of Jonah, kind of becomes a heart of Ricky, too. That I've received grace and mercy. Thank you for spending it towards me. But I I don't really have time to go out with it. We We become the recipients of it, no longer the conduits of it. And that's what's going on with Jonah. Y'all, we may be offended at seeing Jonah's heart there, but may that cause us to repent too because God has given us all a place that we should go, a way that we should serve. He didn't just put Ricky up here as a speaker and, and Andy as an elder and Mark, he can sing, so these are the people who can serve church in this way. That's not what it was all about. The body moves together. Everybody functions in the way that they're supposed to, and then they go And as we go, we make disciples. And most of us are saying, I know I should be doing that. I'm sorry, God, and yet we still sit here. But we have to go. For Jonah, it meant that he sent a great well. For us, it might mean something else. But but don't each of us maybe flee to our own Tarshish? As Jonah did, maybe we gravitate towards that. We go into our own selfishness. We cling to our own salvation, our own sanctification. Christianity is about us and our relationship with God rather than God seeking to redeem a world unto himself. You and I are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us to a world. He is not desiring, Scripture says, that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And while God could ride that in the clouds, he chose not to. Instead, he came as one man in the flesh, blood and died. And then he commissioned his disciples to go and praise the Lord for you and me that whoever our Jonah was did not relent in sending us that message. And I know we could say, oh, "Well, Ricky, God's sovereign over salvation, right? We preach that. Oh, no, we don't know what that means, really. We really don't understand the depth of that mystery. I mean we could say, well what if Jonah didn't go? Wouldn't somebody else go? You know what? We really don't know how, God's gonna, how God would have done that. All we know is that Jonah did thankfully go. We don't understand the mystery that sometimes we cling so closely to. You and I just have to understand that Jonah had to be faithful. And because he was faithful, because of his repentant heart. Now, we saw the flip side of that. He was faithful, and then he didn't like what God did with faithfulness. Right? That's, a, that's next week. Chapter 4 is next week. That's, that's a weird chapter. But what I'm going to say to you, pastoral connection, that when you repent for your sanctification, it may very well be that God gives you a second chance to honor him with where we fell before. That's what I see in Jonah. God's faithfulness with his repentance, he honors that. So his sanctification sanctification was for his growth. Even quicker point here, repentance in Nineveh. The word reached the king of Nineveh in verse 6. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe covered himself with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he issued, right, this pagan, ruthless king, he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste or anything, I mean from the highest ranks of society to the lowest, and even their livestock, everything in that nation will repent. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. That was a sign of repentance. And let them call out mightily to God. The king of this pagan nation is telling everyone there to cry out to a God whom they have never worshipped before. And then he says, who knows? Verse 9, God may turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do. And he did not do it. Where there is repentance for the Ninevites, there is salvation. I know we can sit there and go, well, was it genuine, though? Yes and no. We know from from the book of Matthew uh, that, that Jesus even refers to the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. And he's saying it in context while talking to the Pharisees. And he says, this generation seeks a sign, but the only sign you will be given is a sign of Jonah, who is in the belly of the fish for three days. And then you will also see in in that same context, he talks about the Ninevites, he says that the men, the nation of the Ninevites, will rise up against the current generation of the Pharisees as a testimony against them. The wickedness of the Pharisees, though they looked righteous, was such that a ruthless and wicked nation of the Ninevites who repents their faith is real enough, obviously, that Jesus says to the Pharisees, they're more righteous than you are. So was the Ninevites, was it a true repentance? I think we've got to deal with that, because that's what we always want to know, right? Kanye West became a Christian. Did he really? That's a question everybody starts dealing with. We don't know. We can't see the heart as God sees it. We worry and we fight about all the wrong things to make ourselves feel more secure and justified. It may be that it's true. It may be that it's genuine. For the Ninevites, it was genuine. Jesus confirms it. He says they we more righteous in their moment than you are, Pharisees. And he's talking about a whole lot of other stuff there, too, about how he'll be in the tomb for three days and so on and so on. But, but you, you need to understand that their heart was so broken by the judgment of God that they would repent, and even despite all of who they were, God would forgive them and relent of destroying them. Now, you also need to know that 150 years later, God would destroy them. Like that their repentance as a nation was momentary. 150 years, and then the Assyrians are destroyed. Cultural trend back. Now you know, there's, there's a whole lot that we could say with this, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm bypassing some of this to get to this heart. Make no doubt about it, that the sin that's within us, or that was within us whenever we were lost, it's the same, puts us in the same categories as the Ninevites. I mean, Jonah, we can, we can relate to him in many ways now. But we were more like the Ninevites than you and I even want to begin to think. I mean, the fact that the gospel went to the Gentiles so that we could be saved is exactly what's going on here. And you might say, well, I'm not like them. I mean, you, sound, you make it sound like they're, but that's just sin in us proclaiming ourselves, really. We want to justify that we weren't that far off. Oh, absolutely we were. But Christ came for us the fact that God would relent of sending his judgment in that final verse, it confirms the authenticity of their repentance. He was ready to move on their behalf. And I find such comfort in this for you and I, as God puts on our heart that we should go. Here's what I find so amazing, that God would send Jonah to this nation that deserves nothing but destruction and, and 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 wrath. And when Jonah goes, the faithfulness of God is that he was already ready to move on their behalf. Remember, the fact that we can repent itself is a gift from God, that God would already be moving in their midst so that they would respond to the message that he is a mighty God who will destroy them. I'm just i comforted by that because whenever you step out to go on mission for God, wherever that is, you have to know that he's not sending you where he already is not. Now, does not mean you will bear the fruit that you want to bear. It just means that you're going to go in the presence of God. The the famous verse that we all like from Isaiah 6. Here I am, God send me. In context is followed by God saying, "Good, go." But you have to know you're going to preach and they're never going to respond. You're going to talk about all the proclamations of who I am and they will not receive you. And Isaiah said, "Here I am. I'll go." It's not the fruit that we go for. It's just the faithfulness to go where he calls us. Okay. So I want to scale this all back. We've talked to repentance. We've talked to Jonah. We've talked to Ninevites. And, and I just, it comes down to this. I want us to scale back and not focus on Jonah and the Ninevites, but look at the amazing faithfulness of God in this entire circumstance. There's great mercy and grace on our behalf, on Jonah's behalf, and on the Ninevites' behalf. He's the hero of the story. He's the reason we can tell this story. In all of this, Jonah exhibited sinfulness and faithlessness. And then when he did repent, we see the unerring faithfulness of God, that God never erred in his presence and love and faith toward Jonah. He was there the entire time. God is the hero of that narrative. Praise God, y'all, that he is forgiving, and he uses people like Jonah and like you and me. Praise God, y'all, that he held Jonah when Jonah was ready to let go of it all. For the Ninevites, in all of this, they showed their sinfulness and their faithfulness. Right, Their history is one of wickedness. And they demonstrated that they were children of wrath and deserving of judgment. And in all of this, when they repent, we see the loving kindness of God to receive their repentance. We see the movement of a creator God who desires his salvation to reach the ends of the earth, even a pagan nation, so that he receives all glory and praise. And so for you and me, praise the Lord that it broke out of Jerusalem and Israel. Praise the Lord that the cross spans everything. Praise the Lord that the Jonah that was sent to you and me did not relent. Praise the Lord that while we were Ninevites in absolute wickedness, God didn't relent. God was faithfully moving towards desiring that we should come to salvation. So the hero in all of this is praise God that he's forgiving and that he's intentional, that he wants to be known, and that he will accept our repentance. And so it is in our lives, in, in, in John, I'm sorry, Jonah three, and what we see is the power of a redeeming God. That he is calling men unto himself. And then we're going to get to chapter four. And that one's a little bit different. Okay? We're going to do that next week. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. And what he commands of all people is to repent unto salvation and what he commands of his church is repent unto sanctification. That you and I would do life together that we would grow towards him to become more like him because without holiness we will not see the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that, that your word is known. I pray that your spirit communicates as deep cries out to deep so your word, your spirit, your, your high priesthood, our high God who's on the throne, resplendent in all of glory, Lord, you also tell us that you would dwell in the heart of the humble. So Lord, give us humble hearts. And Lord, give us a heart that says, Lord, how would you have me repent today? And how would you have me repent in this moment? Because, the goal of repentance is holiness, to know you, to treasure you, to be with you forever and ever. Lord, grant us the gift of humility so that we may have a repentant heart, so that we may gaze on the glory of your cross and proclaim the greatness of who you are forever and ever. Amen.